It's a delight to be able to be with you. Uh, as I have said, uh, uh, I was here uh, six years ago or something like that. I can't, I can't remember uh, for sure when that was. But I'd like to direct your attention to Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, that's on page, page 573 in the bulletins in your pew. And I'm going to read the first seven verses, but really this is not a, an exegetical sermon, so it's not the sort of sermon that you might be used to, and it's certainly not the same type of sermons that we're used to at CRC, we have a similar philosophy of going verse by verse through these passages. But what I like to do is to focus in particularly on one verse, verse 6, actually just one phrase from that verse, everlasting father. But let me read it so you can get, see some sense in the context, and then I'll jump into this, okay? So the word of the Lord from Isaiah, uh, the prophet Isaiah chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and, and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as in the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in the battle tumult and every garment roiled in blood, you will, will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born and to us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice, with righteousness. For this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Now, let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom. You would give us understanding of these things. And Lord, that we would see and apprehend in greater measure with all the saints what is the wonder of what you have done for us by sending your son in accomplishing that perfect and final victory through his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, so that we find ourselves in a state of perfect protection, perfect peace, perfect provision, so that we might fulfill your commandments. We trust this to you for the sake of your son, Christ Jesus. Amen. Now, uh, again, I want to focus in on this one verse uh, that tells us these titles, these names uh, of the Messiah, the coming Messiah. It's hard for me not to read this. You notice even when I read it, I said, wonderful, counselor, the mighty God. The, yeah, I'll stop singing there. But you know, Handel's Messiah. Uh, and of course, there's four titles that are given here. Wonderful counselor that speaks of, of this uh, Jesus, this coming Messiah's divine wisdom. Mighty God that speaks of his divine power. Prince of peace that speaks of the divine shalom that he will bring. But what I want to focus in on is, 
is this little phrase, this puzzling little phrase, everlasting father, that speaks of the Messiah's fatherly uh, provision and protection for his people. I mean, when we think of Jesus providing uh, and, and uh, his fatherly protection, his, his sovereignty, his rule in that way over all things to provide and protect for his people, immediately, at least in my context where I'm at, I can't help but think of the predicament that we find ourselves in as human beings, perhaps especially as modern human beings, the way we think of it as modern people. I mean, there's so much criticism of the idea of a fatherly protector over all of creation when we look at the world that we see. And to be quite honest with you, I have a lot of sympathy with that view. I mean, if there is this God who is sovereign, how do you explain this world where there's terror and trouble? We prayed for Syria. We prayed for Turkey this morning. Actually, interestingly, secular non-believing philosophers speak of the human experience especially as modern people, the way we frame things in our mind, the human experience is that of being a cosmic orphan. A cosmic orphan. One, one writer uh, puts it this way. He's an anthropologist uh, from just one generation ago who taught for years at the University of Pennsylvania, UPenn. He says, quote, man is the cosmic orphan. He is the only creature in the universe who asks, why? Why am I here? Other animals have instincts to guide them, but man has learned to ask the question, who am I? To, to whom do I belong? You know, why am I here? Where am I going? And he goes on to ask, put it this way, he says that as we've called out into the vastness of the universe, in the vastness of the world, and said, is anybody home? Is anybody out there? He puts it this way. He says, the answer that came back was not exhilarating, but dark and terrible. Quote, you are an accident by product of nature, a result of matter plus time plus chance. There's no reason for your existence. All you face is death. I say this to say that this is the psyche of the modern situation that we find ourselves in. And, and at the end of the day, all we are really looking for as human beings, we just want to know that somebody's home. We just want to know that we're not just mere food for worms. You know, the more I've thought about this concept the more I've realized that at the core, I mean, one of the ways to divide humanity is this way. To say at the core of your heart, what voice is speaking to you? Is it, is it telling you, is the voice saying that you are a cosmic orphan with no hope? You're just food for worms? Or is there the voice of the Father saying, you are my beloved child. I've given everything for you. Two options. And the incredible good news of the gospel that I'd like to bring to you this morning is that in Jesus, God has become our everlasting father. We no longer need to be orphans thrown out onto the streets of the world. But we are in Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ, 
treasured, beloved children cared for by the everlasting Father. My friends, let me put it to you this way. We live in troubled times. We live in particularly troubled times relative to maybe anything that we've faced for a long time in the West, in the Western world, as Christian people. I I feel that palpably in in my community. And, And if we're going to be faithful in these troubled times, we need to know, if we're going to be faithful to the mission to which he's called us, faithful in the midst of opposition, yea, even persecution, if we're going to be faithful to be the generous, turning the other cheek sort of people that Jesus calls us to, then we need to know that he is our everlasting father and that we're not orphans, but we're beloved children in Jesus Christ. So here's what I want to do today. I want, I want to tease this concept out, biblically, theologically, of, of God, Jesus in particular, as our everlasting father. Uh, and by just looking at three big turns, three big categories here. Number one, I want us to see what exactly does Isaiah mean by this? Because it's a little confusing. Jesus is our everlasting father. What about the father, right? You know? So what does Isaiah mean by everlasting father? Number two, I want to look at what does it mean to us, the invitation to live into that. And then number three, uh, why can we count Why is it that we can count on Jesus to be this everlasting father for us? So what what does Isaiah mean by it? Number two, what does it mean to us? And then why can we count on this? So uh, number one, what does Isaiah mean by everlasting father? Now, uh, be careful. You always got to be careful of doing eisegesis over against exegesis. Eisegesis is reading your preconceived theology or ideas into a passage as opposed to exegesis, letting the passage speak for itself, okay? That's why we do exegetical uh, preaching. But I hear, I want to Focus just on this one little phrase, everlasting father, and be careful not to read in, if you will, your Trinitarian theology into this. What do we mean by that? Well, father here does not mean the first person of the Trinity. In other words, we believe that God is triune, that there is uh, one God who exists eternally, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is not saying that the Son, Jesus, is the Father. Okay, that's not what's in view here. That would be called modalism, okay, if you know your theology, or Sabellianism, a heresy that's been uh, dismissed and, and actually still exists. Uh, oneness of Pentecostalism, uh, not all Pentecostal, oneness Pentecostalism is a big proponent of this, is that the, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are exactly the, the same, meaning that the, the Son is the Father and the Son is the Holy Spirit, just changing modes, modalism, okay? Certainly not that, but not even the good teaching of what the theologians speak of, the interdwelling of, of, of the persons of the Trinity. In other words, all of the Father does dwell in all of, in all of the Son. And the Son dwells in the Father, and the Holy Spirit dwells in, in, in both of them. This is a biblical teaching. For example, Jesus said, uh, know and understand for sure that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Another place, John 10, uh, he says, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Okay? 
That's good Trinitarian theology. Three separate persons, but you have the interpenetration, the interdwelling of these persons because they're all God. What I like to say is that's good theology, but that's not what's being talked about here. The bottom line, this is not about Trinitarian theology. So what is it? Well, the context, how does... How does Isaiah use the word father throughout the book? Well, he uses the word father as the idea of progenitor or one who protects and provides. Progenitor meaning the founder of a family, um, uh, someone to whom we belong, and is the protector and the provider. And what Isaiah here is suggesting to us in this prophecy is that Jesus, uh, as the one true mighty God is our father. He is our everlasting father. So for example, in Isaiah 64, he says this, but now, O Lord, you are our father. Who is the Lord? Well, Jesus is Lord, just like the father is the Lord and the Holy Spirit is the Lord, right? So Jesus likewise is our protector, our progenitor, our father. We are the clay, he goes on. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Or Isaiah 63, verse 16 says, you, O Lord, are our father. The redeemer from of old is your name. Even in Isaiah 53, that great prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ coming to die as the lamb of God for our sins, it says of him that he shall see his what? His offspring. Jesus is the progenitor. He is the father of his people in this sense. We become children of God by the work of Jesus. He, by Jesus, he, we gain the right, the power to be called children of God. We're born again by the word of the father, 1 Peter chapter 1. So in this sense, we are Jesus' offspring, and he is our father. And this teaching is not something just unique to Isaiah. You find it all throughout the Old Testament. The Psalms are rich with this. We looked at one of the passages just by God's providence today, and that's Psalm 103, verse 13. As a father shows compassion for his children, so the Lord shows compassion for all who fear him. Or, or, or I, uh, Psalm 68, uh, he, that he is a father of the fatherless, the protector of widows. Or Psalm 89, you are my father, my God, the rock of my salvation. Or, or Psalm 146, the Lord watches over and he upholds the widow and the fatherless. Implication, God is the protector. He's the husband and father of the sojourner, widow and orphan. You see, this is, and, and Jesus is God. He is the Lord, so therefore he is this. And he is the everlasting Lord. That's why you get this emphasis of not just father, but everlasting father. From, from, without beginning, uh, nor end. That's why actually in the context of Isaiah 9, it says that of his government, of his uh, rule, uh, over the family of the world, if you will, even uh, his family in particular, the church, there will be no end. Why? Because he is the everlasting father from this time forth and forevermore. So in the context of Isaiah, and especially on the heels of that phrase, mighty God, everlasting father is a reference. What does Isaiah mean? It is a reference to the divine and everlasting fatherly care that belongs peculiarly to God, our creator, our sustainer. 
He is the everlasting progenitor. He made us and we belong to him. He is our divine protector and provider. Uh, so it's not surprising, by the way, then with this in mind from the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, when you get to the New Testament, this is the very way the New Testament writers write and speak about Jesus. So in John chapter 1, uh, it says that he was in the beginning with God, he was God, and then it says all things came into being by him, and nothing came into being that has come into being except through him. He is the progenitor. He's the creator. He's the father of all creation. Or Colossians chapter 1, that all things were created by him, for him, and through him. And in him, he holds all things together. This is what a good father does for his family. Or in Hebrews chapter 1, I understand you're in Hebrews, that, that Jesus is the one through whom he, God made the whole world and he upholds all things. He's the architect of the ages. Jesus is above every power authority and he's orchestrating as a father would uh, all things for the good of his church, for the good of his people, for the good of his children who've been born by the word of his gospel. So Jesus is our everlasting father. He is our progenitor. He is our protector. He is our provider. Now what Second big point, that's the first big point. What does Isaiah mean? Number two, what does this mean then for us? How do we live into this? Well, God in Jesus is our everlasting father. He tenderly cares for us. Uh, but now I come back to our experience many times as human beings. And certainly this is the way our non-Christian friends and neighbors often think. Experientially, this does not seem to be the world in which we live. Why is that the case? When we look at the troubles of our lives, when we look at the troubles of our world, well, the Bible suggests to us that the world that we live in is not the way it's supposed to be, and that's not a result of the lack of his fatherly care. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. If you listen to the German thinkers, they speak of the Weltschmerz. The Weltschmerz, you know, a Kopfschmerz, a Dummkopf, dumbhead, right? A Kopfschmerz is a headache, right? And they speak of the Weltschmerz. The whole world is aching. The whole world is in pain. So I come back to that anthropologist who taught at UPenn. And he's, he's, he, he puts it this way when he's talking about the experience of modern humans that were cosmic orphans. He says, quote, modern man thought that when he had gotten rid of God, he had freed himself from all, the repressed and, uh, from all that repressed and stifled him. Instead, he discovered that in killing God, he had also killed himself. For if there is no God, then man's life becomes utterly absurd. And isn't that the world that we live in? Like, I don't know about you. I've been around 57 years. That's a good number of years, isn't it? It's like, I feel like things are kind of unglued in some ways, you know? I look around. And it's like, what is this world that I'm living in? Other writers speak of the sense of a, a cosmic homelessness. Uh, or I like this one, a, quote, a homesickness for a place that you've never been. That we just have this sense of like, I'm not home yet. You know how good it feels just to be back home in your bed? 
I've been, it's been a busy last two days. Last 48 hours, I've been in eight states in, 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 in just 48 hours. And it's like, I'm looking forward to getting home in my bed tonight, you know? But they're talking here, these guys, these are secular people, talking about a homesickness for a place that we've never been. Psychologists speak of a father hunger. I mean, many of us know this in light of our earthly fathers. Some of us, some of us grew up without fathers. Some of us um, uh, lost our fathers, maybe at an early age. Some of us uh, uh, had neglectful fathers, maybe even abusive fathers. And I can tell you in every one of those situations pastorally, as I engage with people, that it leaves a huge hole. It leaves a huge hole. As a matter of fact, I can't help but think I lost my father at a relatively young age. And uh, remember people asking me, you know, how are you doing? You know, weeks, months after it happened. And uh, I just said, I, f- I feel alone. I feel alone in a way like I've never felt before. But the Bible says that, that that's true of all of us apart from Christ, cosmically speaking. That's the world in which we live. And, and why, is that that, why is that the case? Because the Bible tells us that sin has cut us off from God so that we don't experience his tender care. That the world is not the way it's supposed to be because of sin. That's why, that's why the apostle Paul, for example, in Ephesians 4 can speak of, of us naturally as we are apart from Christ as being alienated from God. Have you ever been alienated from a significant relationship in your life? It's painful. It hurts. He, he another place in, in, in Ephesians 2, speaks of his being strangers to, to God's promises, having no hope without God, home alone in the world. That's the experience. And the Bible suggests to us that this alienation is because of our sin. And furthermore, it seems to suggest that all sin begins with unbelief. That the experience of being a cosmic orphan is not actually driven, this is the interpretation of the world, is not actually driven by the experience of being a cosmic orphan, but by our refusal to trust God as the good and everlasting father. This is right at the heart of the original sin. Remember in Genesis chapter three? In Genesis chapter three, what's the, what's the, what's the suggestion? The advice of the devil? Oh, you can't trust him. That, what, he's a bad father. God's not, he doesn't have your back. He's holding back from you. Go ahead, eat the fruit. I know he told you not to do that, but you can't, I know this guy, you can't trust him. They ceased to believe and and trust in the good and fatherly care of the creator God and so became cosmic orphans and were cast out of the garden. Now what does this alienation create in us? 
Well, this is the effect of sin. It, it drives us into a deep cosmic distrust, a sort of angsty stinginess with our lives. Do you know this feeling? An angsty stinginess. In this sense, and the more you go into that, sin is its own punishment. We're driven deeper and deeper into this scarcity mindset where it's mine, mine. I gotta protect me. I don't, there's nobody who's got my back. I, I can't let my life go. I've gotta look out for me because I got no heavenly father. This is the very essence of sin. And by the way, sin, even though if you're a believer, sin, the power of sin has been broken, it's still gonna function this way in your life. It's still gonna whisper those lies to you. But in the gospel, God in Jesus has become our everlasting father. It's like, it's like we didn't get the memo from Psalm 121, right? Psalm 121 says, behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. He's your shade on your right hand. The Lord will keep you in your going in and your going out. In the gospel of Jesus, in the gospel, Jesus tells us that he will not leave us as orphans, right? And Isaiah here tells us why, because he is our everlasting father. He's got our back. Now, what this does for us, church, if you're a believer, what this does for us is it leads us then to give our lives away. And this was the mark. Man, if you go back, read the stories about the early church, or the church where it's flourishing in certain places, this is always the testimony. It leads God's people when they know, that, oh my goodness, this anxiousness, it's a lie. I do, I do have a heavenly father. I do have somebody who's got my back. It leads us to risky generosity and it leads us on a risky mission. That's what it does. Risky generosity, to the degree that we trust this, we will cease to be driven by that angsty stinginess of the orphan status, but rather to trust in the fact that we're treasured and adopted sons, we'll be generous with our lives. And by the way, research bears this out. A study just came out a few, just now a few months ago. Uh, and get this, which is the demographic subgroup in the United States that's most generous? What is the demographic subgroup in the U.S. that's most generous, that, that statistically gives more money? This is, this, this is how the study defined it. Scripture-engaged Americans. They're not listening to the voice of the orphan they're listening to the voice of the Heavenly Father. You see? They gave three to four times more than just the average run-of-the-mill person because they're listening to the voice of the everlasting Father. To the degree that you're listening to the voice of Jesus as your everlasting Father, you will be more open with your time because you're not fearful of running out of time because you have a Father who is a what? The everlasting Father, Right? You're not going to live with these wide margins. You're going to be wise with the use of your time, but you're going to give yourself away. You're going to be more open with your talents, your giftings, because you're not fearful of being found inadequate or overwhelmed, but you have an everlasting father who will protect you. He is your praise. He's your glory. You can step out and use your gifts and talents, fall on your face, 
People laugh at you. You can laugh at yourself. And you have a heavenly father who's smiling and he's just saying, I love that kid. You see? That's what, that's what it's going to do. You're going to be more open with your treasure. Uh, where where uh, you're not fearful of having, a, uh, where, you're, where, where you're not fearful of having enough. Because you have a everla- ever, uh, pardon me, an everlasting father who is your full provision. You see, behind uh, stinginess is this voice of the lie. That, that angsty cosmic stinginess that we have no heavenly father. And that's why, by the way, when Jesus, every time he addresses worry, it's always, almost always coupled with, with generosity. Or when he talks about generosity, he goes after worry, angsty stinginess at the same time. So for example, if you want to turn with me, you can turn to uh, Matthew chapter six, where you can see the logic of this. It's so amazing. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, he says, in Matthew 6, 24, he says, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. You can't serve God and mammon. In other words, you know, you can give yourself away. You, you 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 can freely be generous. You can have risky generosity. Now, Why, Jesus, can I have that? Look what he says. Verse 25, the very next verse. Therefore I tell you, therefore, you see, connection, right? Do not be anxious for your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body. What you put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air and so forth. Are they not more valuable than these? Actually, got down to verse 31. He says, therefore, don't be anxious, saying what will he eat or drink. That's what the Gentiles, that's what the, that's what the orphans say. You're not an orphan. You've got a heavenly father. You see, and I want you to, I want to punctuate this. Do you see the logic? He doesn't say bad boy or girl, bad girl, bad boy. Stop being greedy. You, you, you broke the greedy rule. Stop being greedy. Stop being so stingy. He doesn't say that. He says, you have an everlasting father. Therefore, you can safely not worry and give your life away. You see that? You see the same thing in Luke 12, where he says, fear not, little flock. It's your father's delight. Don't be afraid, little children. It's your father's delight to give you the kingdom. He's a generous God. What's the very next verse after that? He says this. That's verse 32, Luke 12. Verse 33, the very next verse, he says, therefore, if you will, implied, sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide for yourself money bags that don't uh, fade away, that don't grow old, a treasure in heaven that doesn't fail. Because you have an everlasting father. You see, fear not. Fear not. So it makes us move into risky generosity, but it also makes us move into risky mission, doesn't it? I mean, think about uh, Matthew 28, the Great Commission. What does he command us in the Great Commission? Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Okay? So I'm going to go up to heaven. I'm going to leave you guys here, get the job done, and I'm going to come back and inspect your work and make sure it's done right. Is that what he says? No. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations. You're going to bust out across borders. You're going to go in as special ops people. You're going to go in and out as an army to bring the gospel to every people group of the world. 
And what's going to happen? How are you going to be able to do this? Lo, I am with you. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you as orphans. I will be with you as you go out. I will be standing by your side. I'm your protector. I'm your provider. I will back you to the hilt because I have all authority in heaven and on earth. I will be your everlasting father as you go out and fulfill this mission. I'll be right there with you. Do you see the logic of it? It's really quite powerful. Now, my friends, this does not mean that bad and difficult things won't happen to us. You know that, right? It does not mean that at all. At all. There will be all sorts of difficult things. But, but in, as we go out, by the way, you know, even in our situation, I mean, look, I, I direct you back to the early church. I direct you to the church in, in Iran that's growing like crazy, I'm told, that, that, but is suffering tremendously. I mean, we've had difficulty in our context. This does not mean that there's not difficulty, but trouble and difficulty are absolutely no evidence against the care of our Heavenly Father nor the efficacy of his mission. It is for discipline that you endure. You're going to get to this in Hebrews. I don't think you're there yet. In Hebrews chapter 12, God's treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? We have such a negative view of the idea of discipline. You know, we, we read, oh, what son is there whose father doesn't spank him because he's angry and mad at him? No, that's not the picture. Who disciples him and brings him through difficult things because he doesn't want his child to be spoiled. He wants them to grow up and to have the character of the father that he might share in, that we might share in his holiness. He disciplines us for our good. That's the logic of Hebrews 12. That he's our everlasting, that he's our everlasting father. Now, we need to, we need to end here. And, and I want to close you with this, this final point. Because I want to emphasize the really the, the main point, which is simply this. Jesus is our good. How, how, how can we count on this? Why can we count on Jesus for this? Well, Jesus is our good and everlasting father. Uh, and we can entrust ourselves uh, to his care. Um, Jesus, if in that sense, uh, is, remember... Um, Psalm 23, think about, think about this in terms of the Lord is my shepherd, right? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I'm not going to lack anything that I really need. I'm going to be content under the provision of his care. The Lord is my shepherd. You got to understand in that ancient world, shepherd was a metaphor for a ruler. And the ruler is kind of like a fatherly figure over a people, Right? He cares, he rules over the people. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. As a matter of fact, we even speak of people like George Washington as what? The father of our nation, right? You know, he's the progenitor, you know, the first ruler over the people. So the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Why can I trust this shepherd's care? Well, because look, any, you know this, so those of you who are fathers, uh, fathers just instinctually provide for their children. 
instinctually, as a matter of fact, it aches their heart that they can't do more for their children, right? As a matter of fact, you hear these stories where a father is, is with a child and, and their life is in danger and they instinctually lay down their life for that child. They step in front of the bullet. They give themselves instead of the child, right? They, put, they run into the burning house to get the child because that's what fathers instinctually do. And Jesus says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will God, you see? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then one comes along, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who says, therefore don't worry about your life. God's got you covered. He comes along and says what? I am the good shepherd. And what does a good shepherd do? I'm the good father. I'm the good ruler over his people. I lay down my very life. I lay down my life for the sheep. No one's making me do this. I do it instinctually because that's what love does. And that's what God has done for us in Jesus. And as you listen to the voice, my sheep hear my voice. As you listen to the voice of your everlasting father in Jesus Christ and see his sacrifice, a new narrative takes place in your heart, doesn't it? You realize, man, I don't have to walk around like a cosmic orphan. I've got a heavenly father. Let's pray. Father, I pray that in all of the trouble that we face, uh, that we would uh, rejoice because we know that all of these things, you rule over all of it, even in spite of sin, even in spite of the real work of wickedness and evil in this world that many players, many actors, and certainly the devil himself means for evil. You have the power to overrule and cause for good because you are our everlasting father. And that's what you have fully come for us and become that for us in Jesus Christ who laid down his very life to prove the truthfulness of that. We trust this to you for your sake. Help us to be obedient in the mission to which you call us for we pray in your name, amen.